There we go. Um, welcome again, everybody. My name is Josh. I'm the minister here at Alliance Christian Church. Um, we're going to be diving into the book of Matthew again today. So if you've got your Bible, if you've got a handout, if you use the Bible app, um, we have a, a Bible built into our Alliance Christian Church app. If you want uh, information on how to get those sorts of things, uh, let me know. But first, I would love if you would just go to God with me in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for letting us be a part of your kingdom. We thank you so much for letting us be servants in your kingdom. God, as we dive into your word today, as we try to study what it means to be a kingdom citizen, we ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us the understanding of your word that we need so that we can be loyal citizens of your kingdom. God, I ask that you would be with me. I ask that you would make my words clear and concise so that those who are listening will be able to hear your word and effectively put your word into practice in their life. And most important, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his life, for his death, for his resurrection, and his church. And we pray all of these things in the name of his precious name, Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Amen. All right. I have a question. I, I think I know how this is going to go, but how many of you remember growing up saying the Pledge of Allegiance in school? All right, few. Okay, it's pretty, pretty common. I pledge allegiance to the flag, right? Um, I was thinking about that word, allegiance. Like when I, when I, when I swore my oath, uh, I swore an uh, oath to uphold the Constitution, and this is to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And it's, it's a funny word. It's, the word allegiance actually comes from its old French word back from the medieval times. You know, back in the times where the king owned all of the land and he had multiple lords. He would lord out all of his property and then they would take their land and they would lord out their property to somebody. And so the whole system in the Middle Ages was like this uh, sublet system where the king owned everything and then... And they would have lords, and he would have people under them, and people under them. And so you worked on this piece of land that was rented to you in exchange for your services, for your loyalty to that lord. And it goes all the way down the line. But, so if you were a successful business person, you would own multiple properties, or you would lord over multiple properties, and you'd have multiple different tenants. And you might even work multiple different properties and have multiple different lords above you. You could be an overlord and have property in England and property in France. And that was just fine because those were your different lords. And it was fine and dandy right up until the point where England goes to war with France. And you've sworn loyalty to both kings and you've got a problem. Who does your loyalty go to? And so they came up with this thing called a liege lord. That's where we get the word allegiance. You'd have multiple different people that you worked under, but you only could have one liege lord that you swore allegiance to. And if worse came to worse, he was the one that you were going to put all of your loyalty toward. You have to pick a side. And there can only be one, because if you have multiple liege lords, if you have allegiances to multiple different people, 
you're going to have problems. Well, in the book of Matthew, we're kind of getting to the point where we as the reader, as we're reading through the story of Jesus' life, are, are given the opportunity to pick a side. And we're seeing where everyone falls on that line. So last week we read about Jesus' parables of the kingdom and what the kingdom is like and, and how the ones who are in the kingdom grow and the ones who are not in the kingdom wither. The ones who realize that the kingdom has value, they're the ones that are going to be in the kingdom. And at the very end of chapter 13, we touched on this a little bit, but I want to read this one more time. In Jesus' hometown, he's teaching in the synagogues, and his own people reject him. They failed. They picked the wrong side, basically. So I want you to read uh, Matthew 13, starting in verse 57, just the last couple of verses. It says, So they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own house. And he did not do many miracles there, because of their unbelief. So I want you to kind of keep that idea in your mind, where their allegiance was, where their faith was. I want you to keep this thought in the back of your mind as we go through chapters 14 and 15. So if you jump into chapter 14, verse 1, we're going to read a little bit about King Herod and John the Baptist. They're coming back on stage here. So chapter 14, verse 1 says... At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard reports about Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and because of, his, because of this, miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had repeatedly told him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd because they accepted John as a prophet. But on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Instructed by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Although it grieved the king because of his oath and the dinner guests, he commanded it to be given. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she, or and she brought it to her mother. Then John's disciples came and took the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Okay, so this whole Herod thing, I want to make, I want to take a real quick minute and make sure everybody's on the same page with the whole Herod situation. Because well, let's be honest, it can get confusing because there's like 10 million people in the Bible whose names are Herod. So we also have to remember that Matthew's original audience, the ones who were reading this for the first time, this was not history for them. This was current events. So they already kind of knew who Matthew was talking about. In the same way that, like, if I said the Bush family or the Clinton family and started naming off Bushes and Clintons, right, you know who I'm talking about. Somebody... 2,000 years later, might get a little bit confused because there's like a George Bush, but then there's also a George W. Bush, and well, that's weird. So remember that Matthew's audience already knows all this. And so I want to get us on the same page as them. So here's, here's the rundown on the Herods. We've got Herod the Great. He was the one we read about clear back in the beginning of Matthew. He was the original Herod. He's the sort of the patriarch of this whole thing. And he was a bad dude. 
He was the Herod who um, had all of those innocent children in Bethlehem slaughtered. He was paranoid. He was a tyrannical dictator. Not a good king for Judea. And one thing about Herod the Great is he had a lot of wives and a lot of kids. So his firstborn was this guy named Antipater. I hope you guys can see that. That was his firstborn son. He was the one who was first in line for the throne. Okay? And all of this is happening clear back here at the beginning, right around the time of Jesus' birth, a little bit before, a little bit after. Okay? So Antipater is first in line for the throne, but Antipater is just as paranoid as his dad was. And so he goes to dad and says, hey, my two little brothers, they're starting to maybe start a coup. They're wanting to overthrow the kingdom. Right? This is all historical stuff that happened. So he starts sowing seeds of doubt in Herod the Great to the point where Herod the Great has two of his sons, son number two and son number three, executed. Because big brother has told dad, yeah, your sons are going to overthrow the kingdom. Their names were Alexander and Aristobulus. They didn't last long. But Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. So far, if, you, if it's starting to get icky, if you're starting to put puzzle pieces together, that's because it is. So Antipater goes to dad, says, yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, little brother's going to start a coup. So Alexander and Aristobulus are executed. But Antipater is the only one left to take on the throne. He just can't wait. He cannot wait for dad to die. So he tries to have his own dad killed. So that he can have a throne. Well, dad finds out, sends him, tries him for treason, and he gets put to death. So now the first three heirs to the throne are dead. Okay? Next in line, after all three of them, is this guy named Herod Philip. Or sometimes he just goes by the name Philip. Uh, Herod the Great actually had two sons named Philip. So we're going to call this one Philip I. Okay? Philip I is next in line. And he's the Philip that we're talking about here in our story. And then the other sons, let's just go ahead and get them out of the way real quick. So we got uh, Philip I, we've got Philip II, the other Philip. We've got a guy named Archelaus and a guy named Herod Antipas. Okay? Everybody tracking so far? So Herodias could have been in a royal family, but her dad got executed. So what she goes and does, and she goes and marries her uncle, Philip I, and they have a daughter named Salome. We find that from historical accounts. Okay, So, so Herodias marries her uncle, Philip I, and Philip I is next in line for the throne, but Herod the Great hated Philip I. And so what Herod the Great did was the last minute, right before he died, he changed his mind and gave the kingdom to his other sons instead. And he splits up his kingdom into three different parts. So we've got Philip II, Archelaus, and Herod Antipas are now kings over the region. It's split up into all these regions. Philip I is out of the picture. Okay? Well, Archelaus didn't last long. He was the worst of all of them. Um, he ruled over Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. Philip II kind of got the area east of the Jordan River. And Herod Antipas got the area Galilee, Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. 
Archelaus was also a bad dude. His people overthrew him, went to Rome and said, we don't want this guy in office. And so Rome kicked him out, and Rome had to send their own governors in to take over the Jerusalem area. That's why Pontius Pilate was in charge during that time. If you ever wondered why we had a, a, a king, a king, and then a governor, that's why. Because Archelaus, they just they couldn't have him. They kicked him out. All right, so now you've got Philip II and Herod Antipas, and then Jerusalem's being run by Rome's people. Okay, And that's about where our story in Matthew 14 picks up. So Herodias, if you've noticed, is out of being in the royal family, not once, but now twice. And so what she goes and does is she divorces Philip I, and gets married to her other uncle, Herod Antipas. Okay. So we pick up our story in Matthew 14. And Herodias is mad because John the Baptist has the nerve to tell her that she's got a dysfunctional family. You think? So Salome goes to her uncle who is now... Technically also her stepdad. Wait, yes. Solomon goes to her uncle slash stepdad and does this creepy dance for him. And uncle slash stepdad here at Antipas is like, yeah, I like that. I'll give you whatever you want. Half the kingdom, whatever you want. So she goes to her mom, who is also, also kind of her aunt now. <sighs> she goes to mom slash aunt and says... What should I ask for? And, and, and Herodias is like, I want that John the Baptist guy killed because he had the nerve to say that we're a messed up family. So that's what they did. Now here, it gets worse. I, I spent way too much time researching this. This is a historical account. We find this happens after the New Testament was written. But you want to know the icing on the cake on this whole Jerry Springer episode? Remember Salome? You know what she ends up doing? Getting married to Philip to the other Philip so that she can be in the royal family. Okay, what makes my brain hurt, first of all? Why did I go through all of that? Two, two reasons. Number one, I feel like most people get confused with the whole Herod thing. So I wanted everybody to kind of at least get some semblance of this mess. But the bigger reason I wanted to point that out as we go into Matthew 14 today is I wanted to point out the vast contrast between God's kingdom and our kingdoms. They're not even in the same area code. And we're going to see that as we dive deeper into Matthew is that the lines are being drawn and there's a blatant distinction between the two kingdoms. You need to pick a sign. Matthew's making this point here. Whose kingdom do you want to be a part of? This mess? I don't think so. Let's take a look at verse 13. We're going to read about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And actually, we're going to do something really cool today. What I want you to do is I want you to go a little bit forward in your Bible, and I want you to find the chapter about feeding the 4,000. It should be in chapter 15, verse 32. 
Hopefully, for me, they're on the same page. But if for you, if they're on two different pages, I want you to get to chapter 1532, and I want you to just put your thumb there, because we're going to flip back and forth between these two accounts of feeding the crowds. Read chapter 14, verse 13, feeding of the 5,000 first. It says, Now when Jesus heard this, heard about John the Baptist, he went away from there privately in a boat to an isolated place. But when the crowd heard about it, they followed him on foot from the towns. As he got out, the large, as he got out, he saw the large crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. When evening arrived, his disciples came to him, saying, This is an isolated place, and the hour is already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But he replied, They don't need to go. You give them something to eat. So they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. Bring them here to me, he replied. Then he instructed the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. He gave them to his disciples, who in turn gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up the broken pieces left over, twelve baskets full. Not counting women and children, there are about 5,000 men who ate. Okay, now let's read that. Keep that story in your mind, and let's read the next one in 15. And actually, I want to start in verse 29. Matthew 15, 29. It says, When he left there, Jesus went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up a mountain where he sat down. Then large crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. They laid them at his feet, and he healed them. As a result, the crowd was amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Then Jesus said to his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have already been here with me three days, and they have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry, since they may faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where can we get enough bread in this desolate place to satisfy, satisfy so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They replied, Seven, and a few small fish. After instructing the crowd to sit down on the ground... He took the seven loaves and fish, and after giving thanks, he broke them and began giving them to the disciples, who then gave them to the crowns. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Not counting women and children, there were 4,000 men who ate. After sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadon. Those are... Besides the details of the numbers and the locations and the little details, those are kind of almost identical stories, aren't they? Jesus goes away to have some time, some quiet time. The crowds follow them. He has compassion on them. He says he doesn't want to send them away. He gives the bread to the disciples. The disciples distribute it. And they have baskets left over. So what I want to do is I want to give you this Bible reading tool, and we've talked about it a couple of times, so for those of you who have heard my messages about this, you have already know this, but if you don't, this is going to change your life. When we tell stories in our culture, we tend to put the main point at the end of the story. That's how we make a point. In Jewish culture and in Bible literature and Bible culture, they would oftentimes put the main point of what's going on in the middle. 
It's a big fancy word they call a chiasm. So basically what you would do is you would have a story or an account over here and a story or an account over here, and they match up in some way. right? So at the beginning you have a, an account of feeding the multitudes, and at the end you have an account of feeding the multitudes. And you go to the second account, and it tells you something, and then the second to last one tells you something. And you keep going in like this until you get to the middle, and it's like climbing up a mountain from both sides. And when you get to the middle, that's the point that the author's trying to make. That's the main takeaway of what Matthew is getting here in these accounts. Remember, we talked about it. He didn't necessarily write everything chronologically. He ordered these accounts to make a point. And so we're going to read these stories this way. We're going to read these accounts of what Jesus and his disciples did in this way. So we read the first and the last, and now we're going to read the second and the second to last, and we're going to work our way into the middle. So be prepared to do a little bit of flipping if that's okay with you. So let's go back right after the feeding of the 5,000. I want us to pick up in verse 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of the other side while he dispersed the crowds. After he sent the crowds away, he went up by a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat, already far from land, was taking a beating from the waves, and because the wind was against it. As the night was ending, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost, they cried out with fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, Have courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, order me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind, he became afraid. And starting to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they went up into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. After they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. When the people there recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding area, and they brought all of their sick to him. They begged him if they could only touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. All right, so let's read our matching pair. Let's go one story back from the feeding of the 4,000. We're going to be in chapter 15, verse 21. It says, After going out from there, Jesus went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So this is not Jewish country, by the way. This is Gentile country. A Canaanite woman from that area came and cried out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is horribly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. Then his disciples came and begged him, Send her away, because she keeps crying out after us. So he answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and bowed down before him and said, Lord, help me. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, he said. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, your faith is great. Let what you want be done for you. And her daughter was healed from that hour. <coughs> when he left there, Jesus went along the Sea of Galilee. We read that, sorry. 
So I want to compare those two accounts. In the boat, the 12 who were traveling with Jesus every single day didn't recognize who he was. They said, it's a ghost. But the Canaanite woman, somebody who should have not even known Jesus' name, she wasn't Jewish, she was in a faraway region, she had never had Jesus preach to her because the disciples didn't go to those areas, she immediately recognized who Jesus was. And not only that, she immediately recognized his kingship. She said, Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, King Jesus. Now here's where it gets interesting. So in the boat, the disciples cry out, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. And what does Jesus do? He reassures them. He gives them what they need to help build their faith. He says, do not be afraid, have courage, it is I. To the Canaanite woman, it says, he did not answer her a word. If you've ever had trouble reading this story about the Canaanite woman, you're in good company. Because it can be a hard story to read, a hard story to understand. But I think what we're getting here is, is we're getting accounts of people's faith being tested. So, the twelve, their faith was being tested by the waves. The Canaanite woman, her faith was being tested by Jesus himself. So in the, in the boat, Peter says, if it is you, command me to come to the water. Let me come to you, Jesus. So the woman... What does Peter say to the woman, including the twelve? Send her away. That's a little backwards, isn't it? Peter's all ready to say, Jesus, let me come to you. But then when somebody else is crying out for help, send her away. Get her out of here. And we get in the boat story, Peter's walking on the water. He's walking toward Jesus, and his faith is tested a second time. By the waves, he gets afraid, and he starts to sink. Well, the woman's faith was tested a second time also. Jesus tests her again. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's a harsh statement. That's something that's going to test your faith. You ever I hear stories of people who meet their heroes? They meet celebrities that they know, that they've seen on TV and they've heard about, and then they actually meet them, and it just kind of is a big letdown. Because they're really jerks. Kind of that scenario might have been going on in this woman's mind. But I think Jesus knew how strong her faith was. And knew how strong her faith was going to be. So while Peter is getting reassurance. He's literally walking on water. He's getting proof that he's walking toward the king. By the fact that he's walking on water. The woman is getting turned down and tested around every corner. And yet... Whose faith prevailed in the end? It says, When he, Peter, saw the strong wind, he became afraid. And starting to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him, saying, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? On the contrary, the woman says, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I don't care what you say. I don't care how you say it. I don't care how it comes across. I know you're the king, and I'm not moving from this spot. 
Because I know you're the king. I know you can save my daughter. I have faith in you. And Jesus answered, woman, your faith is great. Let what you want be done for you. And her daughter was healed from that hour. Peter took his eyes off Jesus. The woman was relentlessly focused on Jesus. Where is your focus? Where is your focus not just when things are good, but when you're getting turned down, when the waves are crashing, when everything you wanted, everything you thought you needed is not there, when your faith is tested? If your faith is in this world and this kingdom and that whole kind of mess that I showed you with the Herod's family, if that's where you're putting your faith, you're, you're in big trouble. And at this point in our little our exercise of, of going from the ends and working our way in, the dividing lines are pretty clear. Jesus is compassionate to the crowds. The twelve wanted to send people away. And the dividing line is where you put your faith. Even in our, our stories about the feeding of the crowds, who had faith in those stories? It wasn't the twelve. It was the crowds. You know how I know that the crowds had faith? If you're in a room of four or 5,000 people, and they have five loaves of bread, and they say, gather around, we're going to have a meal, sit down. You don't sit down unless you're confident that you're going to get fed. If I go to a potluck and I see three crackers on the table and 3,000 people, I'm leaving. I ain't sticking around for that party. But they sat down to eat. The disciples, even though they had seen Jesus do it, didn't quite still have the faith that he could do it. They didn't have the faith that Jesus could feed them. And I want us to have the same kind of faith where when we sit down with God, when we open our Bible, when we go to God's word, that we have faith that God is going to feed us. He's going to take care of us. Our spiritual needs, everything we need, God is going to take care of us. God knows your heart. All right, let's bring it home. Our last two accounts, we're going to have a conversation with the Pharisees. So jump on back to Matthew 15, verse 1. It says, The Pharisees and experts in the law came from Jerusalem to Jesus and said, Why do your disciples disobey the tradition of the elders? For they don't, want, they don't wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you disobey the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And whoever insults his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if someone tells his father or mother, whatever help you would have received from me is given to God, he does not need to honor his father or mother. You have nullified the word of God on account of your tradition. So the Pharisees were putting their faith in these rituals. That's the first thing that's going on. So before they ate, they would do this ritual ceremonial Hand washing. It wasn't like you and I where we actually get soap and water and rub the bacteria off. It was all ritual. And sometimes they wouldn't even use water. They would sit down to eat and they would just rub their hands together to signify that now they're clean. Nothing unclean will enter my mouth because I did this. 
And so they, they call out Jesus. They say, why aren't you doing the ritual? We've been doing this ritual for, for years now. And Jesus snaps back and, and, and basically says that you think you're so great and you're so righteous because you do your little hand-rubbing thing. What about putting your faith in the actual word of God? Honor your father and mother. That's in the Ten Commandments. See, what, what, what he's talking about here is that in that time, every able-bodied Jewish adult was expected to take care of their parents when they got older. That's the way it was in that culture. If you, if you want my opinion, I think it's the way it still should be. But one of the really skeevy ways that people would get out of taking care of mom and dad was that they would pledge their will, their inheritance, their whatever, to the temple. And financially, it was a win-win because they didn't give any money to the temple until after they died. All they did was say, I, I vow to give 100% of my worth to the temple when I die. And you were still allowed to spend that money and live off of it for yourself. But if mom and dad needed the roof worked on on their house, if mom and dad needed some help because they couldn't get up the stairs and were like, hey, we can't work, son, could you please take care of us? All you had to do was say, sorry, Mom, all of that's already accounted for. It's going to be going to the temple after I die, so I don't have to help you. And the Pharisees allowed it. Financially, the Pharisees were, it worked out for them because they got, the, the temple got to take all the money. The Pharisees got their paycheck increased, and the person who pledged it, it worked out for them because they didn't actually have to sacrifice anything. It was just an excuse for them to not be generous and honor their mother and father. And so Jesus calls them out on this skeevy practice and says, I don't care how much you put your faith in your little traditions, how much you put your faith in the Pharisees and, and this whole pyramid scheme that you've built up. You're not clean. Your actions are showing that. And then he responds to the crowds. I want you to jump down to verse 10. It says, he called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What defiles a person is not what goes into the mouth. It is what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that when the Pharisees heard this saying, they were offended? Such an awesome question. Did you know they got offended? I think that's what he was going for, um, was offending the Pharisees. And he replied, every plant that my heavenly father did not plant will be uprooted. Leave them. They're blind guides. If someone who is blind leads another who is blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. Jesus said, even after all this, are you still so foolish? Don't you understand that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and passes out into the sewer? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these things defile a person. For out of the heart come evil ideas, murder, adultery. Sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are the things that defile a person. It's not eating with unwashed hands that defiles a person. So he hits the nail on the head here. It's about your heart. What is coming out of your heart? And your heart is built of where you put your faith. The thing that you put your faith in is going to fill your heart. And that is what is going to come out. That's what's going to make you clean. 
So we've, we've worked our way from the beginning and the end of these two chapters, and we're going to slowly get ourselves to the point right in the middle. This is the take-home. This is what Matthew wants us to understand. This is what God wants us to understand from these two chapters. And it's a quote that Jesus gives from Isaiah 29, the centerpiece of this whole account. It says, hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, These, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And they worship in vain, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is what it comes down to. Is your faith genuine? Is your heart with God? Or are you just playing footsie with the idea of faith? Are you giving faith lip service? You honor God with your lips, but your heart's far from Him. Because we can say, I have faith, I have faith, I'm, my faith is strong, I can say it all day long. I can say I'm a part of the kingdom, but where is my heart? The Canaanite woman, she wasn't just paying lip service to the kingship of Jesus. Her heart was there, and her actions, when her faith was tested, proved it. The crowds, when Jesus said, sit down, you're going to have a meal to eat from these five loaves of bread. When they sat down, their hearts were with Jesus, their faith was in Jesus, and their actions proved it. I think I want us to I want us to have the kind of faith where we put our heart with God. Real quick, could somebody uh, either call, text, or go grab Nancy from downstairs? I forgot to do that earlier. I want to leave you with this verse. This is from Matthew 6.21. Jesus says, accumulate for yourself treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we go through this week, I just ask that you find the right place to put your heart. <coughs> we pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just, we just want to give our hearts to you. God, we just want to have you help us to have the kind of faith that honors you, that glorifies you. God, we just ask that you would help us to learn from your word day in and day out. And we thank you so much for all the blessings that you give us. And we pray all of this in your son's precious name. And the church said, Amen. All right. If your heart is not with Jesus, if you're not a kingdom citizen... We take time every single week to invite someone who has not joined the kingdom, whose heart is not with Jesus, to make that decision. And what's beautiful is if, as you read through the Bible, especially in the book of Acts, you'll notice that somebody puts their faith in Jesus and it says immediately they got up and were baptized. And it's always both. It's always their faith and their confession in Jesus, and then they were baptized. You have to have both. You cannot just get in the water without faith and expect that anything's going to happen. 
your faith, where you put your heart is, is what's most important. And so this time I love we would sing this song of invitation. I want to sing about how good God is. One of our elders here, Mr. Ron Jones, is going to be up here.